The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, Laura. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Glenn? I'm doing just fine. I'm doing great. I'm with Laura Bazelon. She's a law professor at the University of San Francisco's law school, runs a clinic out there on criminal and racial justice issues, writes books like Rectify, uh, which I gather is about uh, uh, cases where you intervene and you, you know, someone who's been falsely uh, convicted is uh, exonerated. Uh, I read her novel, her novel, The Good Mother, which was so kind of fun. Uh, and uh, this issue of uh, motherhood and ambition is also something that Laura has written about. Uh, so she's here, the Glenn Show, Glenn Lowry, Brown University, responsible by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City. Uh, every other week I'm with John McWhorter, but this week I'm with Laura Bazelon, and I'm really excited to be talking to Laura. So hi. Hi, Glenn. I'm so happy that you're having me back, and it's great to see you. Yeah, having you back. That's true. That's true. Um, so uh, we were having such a good conversation before we started recording. <laughs> I almost want to go back and revisit some of those uh, some of those themes. We were talking about my memoir in progress, about which no more is to be said because I've been talking about it for almost a decade and, and it's like a humiliation to even bring the, bring the subject up, but I'm making progress on it. Um, but uh, I saw you give a speech recently uh, to a, a group, FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, Freedom, what is it? <laughs> They changed it recently, so it's a bit confusing, but it's the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And Expression. Uh, it was students, right? Was it a... It was. It was their annual conference, and about 100 students attended from all across the country. Yeah. You were telling an interesting story. You were talking about Title IX. You were talking about uh, sexual assault uh, adjudication on college campuses and Betsy DeVos and, uh, you know dear colleague letters and all of that kind of stuff and talking about your own uh, being involved in a case pro bono defending john he will be called etc and uh, i was just intrigued Laura. I'm, I'm so excited that you're willing to talk about it in public how brave of you so as i'm talking to you right now my heart is beating really fast i talk about issues publicly all the time and normally i'm completely comfortable explaining what my position is. But with Title IX, I find myself deeply uncomfortable because the way that I feel about these campus adjudications of sexual assault puts me really out of line with what I call my own team, the progressive team. And so it's nerve wracking to have to explain it. And at the same time, I feel like it's really important to to talk about why I've come to believe the things that I've come to believe. Wow. Okay, your team. What's Title IX? Maybe we should start. There. I mean, everybody knows. They, they read the newspaper. They know. But why don't you just frame it, you know, in a couple of minutes? Okay. So the short and dirty on Title IX is that it's a federal statute and it prohibits discrimination in education on the basis of sex starting in the 90s and continuing in a series of Supreme Court decisions in the 2000s, the high court said that Title IX also prohibited sexual harassment and sexual assault because that is gender-based violence and harassment that could interfere with someone's ability to equally access their education. And so because of those decisions, all campuses and universities that receive federal funding, and that's all of them essentially, have this obligation now to litigate allegations of sexual assault when they arise on campus, both between students and students, professors and professors, students and professors, etc. 
the reason I have come to know of this issue in this particular way is because I run a racial justice clinic at the University of San Francisco, and we were asked in 2018 to represent somebody who had been accused. And it was through the odyssey of that case that I came to be almost radicalized in how I felt about the way that these processes were happening and why, at least for me, they they really ran afoul of due process and my own understanding of how the justice system is supposed to work. Okay. These are not legal proceedings. Uh, there are somehow administrative uh, uh, assessments within the framework of the university where what's at stake is not that someone's going to be put in jail, but they're going to be dismissed as a student or something like that. That's a question. That is correct. And that's part of the reason why the due process concerns are so hard to explain, because when you tell people, well, this is an administrative proceeding and the language that these schools use, they talk about discipline. They don't talk about conviction. They talk about finding somebody responsible, not finding somebody guilty. They don't refer to the accused as the defendant. They refer to them as the respondent. This language really, to me, conceals what's at stake because if you are found responsible of a Title IX violation, and mind you, the burden is a preponderance of the evidence, which basically means 50% plus a feather, you're probably going to be expelled. And if you're expelled and you are labeled a Title IX sex offender, which you will be, you're never getting an education again. But that language, sex offender, well, okay. Um, I ordinarily think of a rapist. I think of someone who's committed a violent crime, right? That's a pretty serious crime. Well, that's the thing, Glenn. These are violent crimes. That's That's what's so high stakes about it. You are actually being accused of a violent crime. You're being accused of a rape. You're being accused of a sexual assault, but you're being accused in an administrative proceeding where you're not entitled to a lawyer, you're not entitled to a jury, and you're not entitled to a finding of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And the justification for that is, well, you're not going to jail, you're not getting a felony conviction, which is true. But what you are getting is a record that makes it impossible for you to continue with your education. Let me just, uh, I'm kind of, kind of play devil's advocate and legal theorist devil's advocate, and I'm not, I'm not really a legal theorist, but let me just try this. So there's a plagiarism question. It has to be adjudicated. The professor thinks the student did not abide by whatever the regulations are for the originality of the work. Somebody's got to look at the text and make a, an assessment. Would a student, what the stakes are p- potentially uh damage to reputation and expulsion and whatnot, if it's serious enough. Is that a due process situation or is that a situation where the administration of the institution can just assess the facts and and come to a conclusion? That is also a due process situation. And there's Supreme Court precedent about all of these situations, because as you said at the outset, and you're right, they're all administrative you get noticed, you get the opportunity to be heard. A lot of schools, you know, will let you have a hearing on a disciplinary charge. And usually the standard is a preponderance of the evidence and there'll be a finding. I think the difference is, and maybe you can correct me, but when my students, and this is unfortunately occasionally happened, commit an act of plagiarism, it's pretty obvious. And it either happened or it didn't because the words are substantially similar or exact or they're not. And when you're talking about what happens between two people in a situation involving an accusation of sexual assault, often followed by a defense of consent, it's much, much murkier. Yeah, I see that. Okay, so your concern, uh, your concerns were uh, uh, instigated by your involvement in a case or predated the case or what? It didn't predate the case. I mean, and I'm almost embarrassed to say this because I should know better, but whenever I thought about Title IX before that I had this case, I thought about Title IX in the context of women's sports getting equal funding. I didn't ever really think about campus sexual assault. In my previous incarnation as a federal public defender, I had represented people accused of rape and sexual assault. Of course, when you're a public defender, 
you don't pick your clients, they automatically get a vigorous defense and the burden is on the other side to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So I had familiarity with the type of allegations, but I had never thought about representing a student on a college campus in the context that you and I are talking about until this person who I had been working with, who was a lawyer who takes cases for money, told me about this student in a California State University who had already been found responsible and needed someone to help him appeal internally. And I didn't want to do it, Glenn, because I didn't want to do it because I know what these cases are like. And it felt like I was going to be on the quote unquote wrong side because I was going to be on the side of someone who'd already been found essentially to have been a rapist. And I was coming up for tenure. And when you're a clinician, part of your tenure package is you have to talk about the cases that you litigate with your students. And I was honestly really worried about how representing this person would, would be perceived publicly and within my own institution. Okay. Well, that's clearly a lawyer's dilemma, right? Because uh, even a rapist is uh, worthy of a, of a defense, Atticus Finch and all of that. I mean, you know. But uh, you ended up taking the case. I did because my students shamed me into it. I went to talk to them about it and I explained what the situation was. It was across racial allegations. It was a white student accusing a black student. And the undisputed facts were that she had matched with him on Tinder, gone and had a sexual encounter with him. Three days later, reached out to him again to match on Tinder, had another sexual encounter with him. And then about three or four weeks later, had brought an allegation against him saying that the first encounter had been rape. And he didn't have anybody to advise him during the investigation of her allegation. And at the time, he wasn't entitled to a hearing or anything. And so essentially what happened was this one person, this investigator who was under contract with the school, interviewed him, interviewed her, interviewed a couple of other people, and then just came to the conclusion that she was more believable than he was and that he had raped her that first time. And the school had decided that they were going to expel him. And that's where the case was when it fell into my lap with the added issue that as it was unfolding, the word got out on this campus, Uh. which had, I think, only 3% Black students. And some of the student activists had made posters of his face and his name with the word rapist underneath and plastered them all over the campus. What a story. Can I, I mean, here's, here's, I, I want to dwell on the facts here for a minute. They matched on Tinder and then they had sex the first time. She says she was raped then, yet they rematched and had sex a second time after that. Does that not undermine the credibility of her charge that she didn't give consent on the first occasion? She came back to the same guy for, they hooked up. I, I don't understand how. That's not like overpowering as a kind of, I, help me, help me. I mean, that, it's weird. That's, they matched on Tinder. What's Tinder for? Isn't it for people matching to have sex? What's the intent? What's the evidence? I, rape? I, you know. So what, what am I missing? Well, you're missing some other things that, that are also problematic, although maybe not for the reason that you think, I'm so sorry about my dog. Um, one of you're right. I mean, when you would tell people the story, you tell the guy on the street the story that I just told you, or the woman on the street, they just raise their eyebrows and they say, Well, how can that be? Um, the other sort of complicating factor in the background was that she had been entangled in a relationship with my client's friend for about 18 months, and it was a very just problematic, I think quasi abusive relationship where he had cheated on her, given her a sexually transmitted disease, had treated her really badly, but she was very much in love with him. And when she went on Tinder, which as you say, is a site to hook up and have sex. I mean, some people have relationships, but that's what it's known for. They were in this off period where they had broken up. And the second time that she had sex with my client, that was the day before they got back together. So they get back together and he says, have you been with anybody? And she says, well, yes, with your friend, but he raped me. 
And she didn't tell him about that second encounter until much, much later. And none of that evidence mattered to the Title IX investigator because the accuser had turned over all of these text messages between her and her on-again, off-again boyfriend, spelling all of this out. And the Title IX investigator said it's all irrelevant. It only matters in that one moment in time in that first encounter whether or not she consented. And I find by, by 50% plus a feather that she didn't consent. Okay, again, I'm, I'm just a lay person here. This seems awful. It seems really awful. It seems this is what I see. Maybe this is what you don't want to be associated with. Like the rape culture ideologues, the ones who, are, who have a general view about gender, sex, what's going on and whatnot. Uh, you know, me too, crazed. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just going to say what I think. Have uh, now uh, created a circumstance in which that kind of complexity of interpersonal relationship that's going on there amongst, I don't know, 20-year-olds uh, becomes, I mean, quasi-criminalized and the the bureaucratic power of the institution gets mobilized and appropriated. And I, I mean, I'm thinking about the incentives, the incentives for people to bring cases in the first place, to make different kinds of allegations against one another. And then that there would be posters around the campus with this person's picture on it. He's a rapist. He's a rapist. On these facts, the facts that you're describing to me, I mean, this is a witch hunt. It felt like that. And the other thing that was scary was that because of these posters, there were threats against uh, my client and he had been hiding in his apartment for several weeks when we got this case. And when I asked the school to investigate it, initially they refused. He wrote a text to the Title IX investigator that said, please help me. People die behind allegations like this. And she wrote back, that's not my job. So on the one hand, they were all in to investigate the accuser's sexual assault allegations against him. But on the other hand, when he's basically in fear of his life because he's been branded a rapist on campus, they had no interest in doing that. And the thing about this case that made it really interesting and unusual is that, as I said, he wasn't entitled to any kind of a hearing. And there was a single person who was essentially the detective, the prosecutor, the judge, the jury, and the executioner. No hearing, no neutral fact finder, because those were the rules at the time. And when we appealed, we pointed out that even under those rules, which are problematic in my view, and later were ruled unconstitutional by the California Court of Appeal, he didn't get a fair shake because the investigator didn't follow the rules. They ended up remanding it. But while that happened, the woman who brought the allegations against my client, she went to court. She went to court because she wanted to get a permanent harassment restraining order entered against my client in the legal system. And when you do that, when you go to court, that triggers all of these due process protections that I was used to as a criminal defense lawyer. You have a right to a lawyer, you have a right to cross-examine. And the evidence that the Title IX investigator had dismissed as irrelevant, we got to cross-examine on. Had, had, determining excuse me, had your, my, had your yeah, client been harassing her? Was there some reason for her to, to request such a restraint? It was so wild, Glenn. He had stayed as far away from her as possible. And she admitted that he had never contacted her, not text, not Snapchat, not email, not a call. He hadn't gone near her. They had also suspended him from campus so he couldn't be there. Her allegation was that he was putting his friends up to making videos and otherwise sort of protesting her rape allegation. But there was absolutely no evidence that they were his friends or that he had done anything. There were some black student organizations that were oh, upset. Gosh and had made some public statements, but he didn't have anything to do with that. So it was just strange for her to go to court anyway. But what happened as a result of that was I got to cross-examine her. And when I got to cross-examine her, that's when the whole story about the on-again, off-again boyfriend and everything that had happened. Oh, wow. You didn't know about it before then? You discovered it in cross-examination? I had the text messages, but I didn't, it was so interesting. I couldn't piece it all together. So I, I couldn't exactly make sense of it until I was able to actually ask her questions. But I, if you don't mind, I can just read you this little oh, no, please. snippet. As I told you, just to set it up, 
Um, the sexual encounter happened for the first time with my client in late October. And then the second time, 72 hours later in November. And then 24 hours after that, she reconciles with her boyfriend. So she reconciles with her boyfriend on November the 4th. The last sex that she had with my client was on November the 3rd. Okay. So this was, this is the back and forth between her and me at at this hearing. But my question to you yesterday was on November the 4th, you told your boyfriend that you had sex with my client a single time. And your response to me was yes. Answer. Yes. Me. Okay. When you finally did tell your boyfriend about the second consensual sexual encounter, he responded in a text in all caps, quote, I asked you what the fuck happened and you wait to tell me this part, end quote. Answer, yes. Question, and that text was sent to you on November the 27th? Yes. In other words, three weeks later. Question, he was angry with you? Yep. He didn't believe you anymore that my client had raped you? No. When you told your boyfriend the truth about the second encounter, your boyfriend responded, quote, how do you get raped and go back for more? Why didn't you tell me this part of the story when you came over on November the 4th? Oh, wow. That's what he said, correct? Answer, yes. Question, you said, I kept trying, but I couldn't get it out. I still can't wrap my head around why I went back. I just don't understand why I did it. Answer, yes. And your boyfriend responded, quote, that is not right. Just because you didn't enjoy it that one time doesn't mean it's rape. You came back for more. That's totally misleading. Answer, yes. And you responded in all caps to your boyfriend. That is why I am saying it's not easy. There is no simple answer. OMG. God. Right. The boyfriend didn't even believe that she was raped. No, he did on November the 4th when she said, I had sex with your friend one time, but he raped me. But then three weeks later when she told him the whole truth, he didn't. And the the college administrator who made the uh, uh, judgment here had all this information in hand? She did. And then it gets kind of more wild because, as I said, when she went to court and had this separate collateral proceeding with me cross-examining her for two days... The case had been sent back in the college level for the investigator to fix her errors. So while that was happening, I got this transcript and I sent it to the investigator. And there was all this other stuff in there that we got for the first time. She had made a police report that we didn't have. The police report had statements in it that didn't match up with the statements that she told the investigator. There was, over the two-day period that I cross-examined her, a number of false statements that she had made. So we provided all of that. And said, you need to consider this new evidence as you're redetermining the case to fix your errors. And she said that every single thing that we presented to her was irrelevant, all of it, and that she found him responsible for rape again after hearing what I just told you, plus a whole bunch more. And so we had to appeal again. What's her reasoning? Uh, Does she have to explain herself? Her reasoning was hearkening back to... In the first encounter, I'm looking at this moment in time, and even though in that first encounter, by her own admission, she consented to a number of sexual acts leading up to the intercourse, including oral sex and other things, she says she didn't consent to vaginal penetration, and I believe her, and you are trying to dirty her up and say she's a liar and bring out all these motivations and essentially... I don't think that any of that matters. And this is the part of it that's so hard, right? Because as a feminist and as a believer that sexual assault happens and is so often brushed under the rug, essentially to be told by the investigator, you know, you are a rape apologist. She didn't come out and use those words, but it got it got pretty heated. And also to excuse me for interrupting. Did she ask him to stop? Did she say that she asked him to stop? During the first encounter? She said that they matched on Tinder. She came over to his place. They watched television. He then you know, asked her to do a number of things. They engaged in a number of acts. And then while she was turned over onto her stomach, which she did after he asked her if it was okay that she do that, that's when he had sex with her. 
and didn't ask. And she said words to the effect of ow and stop and, and no. So that was, that was what she said. And then, and then she drove him to back to school. And then three days later, she, she went back to his apartment and no one disputes that that's that time. It was consensual. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's possible, right? It's possible that it, it happened that way. Things are very, very complicated. But to say that that there's a preponderance of the evidence supporting supporting it to me seems, you know, certainly arguable. But what was so like frustrating as his advocate was that I'm used to the court. I'm used to what I just read to you, where I'm allowed to ask questions. I'm used to having a judge sitting up there who's listening and weighing the evidence. I'm used to looking over in the jury box and seeing 12 people who are going to use their common sense and their life experience and weigh the evidence. And in Title IX, you don't get any of that. And what was interesting being in court was we won in court. I mean, granted, it was she wanted to put him in a offender database because he was harassing her. And as I told you, he wasn't. So I think it was a fairly easy decision for the judge to make. He wasn't deciding on the underlying allegation. But the difference between being able to go to court and use due process rules to try to get to the truth and try to uncover information and being in the world of Title IX where I'm not allowed to speak, there's no hearing, there's no judge, there's just one person deciding everything. It's just, it's completely bizarre. Again, I'm not a legal analyst. It just seems to me a lot is riding on consent here. Yes. On the facts that you just described, they're having sexual interactions of one kind or another. She, she was okay with this, but she was not okay with that. Um, a, a, a lot is riding on, on that. And it looks, I mean, it would be easy for me to envision uh, ambiguities and differences of interpretation and, you know, <laughs> am I justifying rape here? I think that's what people are going to say at the end of the day. Passions of the moment, I was about to say. Uh, it's kind of like, it's a negotiation. I'm sorry. I, I know it sounds terrible. I know. Uh, please just correct me. I'm asking for correction. I want guidance here. Uh, because this kind of thing that's going on between the man and the woman, the man and the man, whatever, uh, in the moment of, uh, of this dynamic, this ex post facto to come back away from that and inter- inter- uh, Jack, at this moment, it was yes and then it became no. Kind of. And you're going to bring the law into that? You're going to ruin people's lives because of that? I don't know. <laughs> Bail me out, please. What, you know, what am I saying that's wrong? I, well, it's, well, this is so I'm listening to you and you're ex- this is why talking about this is so hard. Why is it so hard for you and I to have a conversation about this? What if we were talking about a robbery? What if we were talking about a murder yeah. and it was being adjudicated on campus? and adjudicated in court. I think you and I would be having a much easier time than we are right now. So why is this so hard? I think it's really hard for a couple of reasons. It's hard because we've come out of this and we're still in this Me Too era, right? Where we are acknowledging how we've been treating women, including on college campuses. And I can tell you, having been on them, it was not a picnic in the 90s when I was on college campuses and there wasn't Title IX and things happened to me that were not great. And I had no, no recourse. And it's not as if most people who say they've been sexually assaulted are making it up. Right. And so we know all of this, we know we have this really awful history of, of throwing these allegations out the window under burying them under the rug, whatever your metaphor, we have all of that going on. And at the same time, we have a system of assessing serious allegations in our country that is about probing and is about being skeptical and is about asking where is the evidence and so those things are bumping up against each other and then you layer onto that the nature of the allegations that we litigate in my clinic which are generally cross-racial and you have a history in this country of white women and black men and rape allegations and so when you put all of that together, it's it's such a mess. And it's really hard to know how to say and do or feel 
the quote unquote right thing. Never mind, stay on your own team. Your own team. So was there a rape culture on campuses in the 90s when you were a student, in your, in your opinion? No, I wouldn't say there was a rape culture. I would say that there was no mechanism to really report when, when something happened. I would say that there were just a lot of situations where there was some level of coercion and, and things. I mean, I'm being inarticulate here because I'm like struggling to sort of think about some of my own experiences. And I had some experiences where I really felt badly treated and coerced and even sometimes like physically pushed to, to, to do things at the same time. I'm not really sure that if, and if I had had a title IX mechanism available to me, I, I would have used it. Or even that in my mind, I thought of it as an assault. I think I thought of it as, you know, quote unquote, bad sex. What about believe women? Isn't that part of the problem? Isn't that why it's difficult? Because one, not only is there a history of uh, cross-racial allegation, there's also a history of the discounting the victim of rape because, uh, you know, she's, quote, a slut, close quote. The, the woman in the case at hand, your Jane, certainly would qualify as a target in, if we were back in the old days where, you know, uh, that kind of thing could uh, get into the discussion. So we've passed. We're not in the old days anymore. We've we've learned uh, that uh, you don't judge by the length of the girl's skirt whether or not she was inviting an attack. Likewise, uh, you don't uh, presume to... Uh, the administrator in the case at hand is siding with the girl because she believes her. She says she believes that she did not want that and it happened to her and you believe women. So you, you're you're a traitor not only to your progressivism but to your to your sex. That's right. You're a traitor to your gender. Thank and you I for think the correction. You put your, and I think you're you put your finger on exactly what it is that makes it so uncomfortable that the slogan coming out of me too was believe women. But I find that deeply problematic as an advocate because I don't think that any gender or race, or ethnicity has a monopoly on the truth. We don't say, believe men. We don't say, believe X ethnicity. We say, show me the evidence. We say, we're going to test your allegation. And so there's something to me that's so problematic about that. It feels like an overcorrection. And yet my even saying to you, no race or gender has a monopoly on the truth, as I'm saying those words to you, they seem highly controversial. We do live, uh, Madam Law Professor, in the era of high-profile sexual assault allegations having tremendous political resonance. One thinks immediately of Brett Kavanaugh. You're going to believe Christine Blasey Ford. You're not going to believe Brett Kavanaugh, even though you're decades beyond and there's, you know, very hard to get the facts. I mean, you're just going to believe her out of solidarity with a certain sensibility, a certain side within the political culture conflict. And uh, I wonder if that kind of sensibility, whose side am I on? Who am I? What do I, what are my values? What are our institutional values? If that doesn't creep in through this administrative process to uh, the adjudication of individual cases, like the one that your client, John, was caught up in. You're exactly right. And yeah, go ahead. No. I was going to say political theater. That was my... Yes. So that's the other layer is the political theater layer and being on one team or another. And I think the piece of this that we've not talked about, which I feel like is important, is that these cases are at the center of a culture war. And the institutions that traditionally I would have expected take the side of the accused do not because of the way that the culture war is so politicized. So the best example I can give you is the ACLU, which is this 100-year-old bastion of, of civil rights and the belief that no one is guilty until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and standing up for the most depraved, awful people, including Nazis having the right to march at Skokie, etc. And when 
the Trump administration came out with guidelines that required in these campus cases things like a hearing and cross-examination and a neutral fact finder. The ACLU tweeted out to their 2 million followers, these regulations are terrible and unfairly favor the accused. And I can only conclude that they took that position because they had become the foremost legal colossus that was opposing every single thing that Donald Trump did. And they were on the point of the, they were the tip of the spear of the resistance. But it's completely antithetical to their century old mission to say that putting in basic procedures like the ones I described to you unfairly favor the accused. And that's where my quote unquote team is, which again, makes this so uncomfortable. I am a progressive. I'm a feminist. I feel like as I'm saying these things to you, maybe your listeners don't even believe me when I say it. I believe you. (laughs) She's okay, guys. (laughs) Uh, Okay, Trump. So the Obama Education Department, the Trump Education Department, they have different approaches to the question of the enforcement of Title IX regulations. Uh, And Trump's Trump bad, Trump bad. Therefore, anything Trump does or Trump agent Betsy DeVos does bad. Uh, But you actually think Obama was wrong. The Obama administration's treatment of this issue was wrong. And and that's the the rub, right? I mean, uh, when you actually look at what the different policies were, you, you favor the policy of the Trump administration. I mean, he, he's, he's not necessarily wrong about everything. Exactly. And that, again, is deeply uncomfortable. And to make it even more complicated, I mean, obviously, I didn't vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> I can't stand everything about him. It, it, he's anathema to me, and I was certainly not a fan of Betsy DeVos. At the same time, you're absolutely right those regulations that were put into place, they were badly needed. And in fact, they were in line with what almost every single court was finding when these cases were ending up in civil litigation, that almost every court was coming down on the side of the Trump regulations, because that's just basic common sense. Okay, let me let me ask you a question. So of course, you don't like Donald Trump. Of course, of course. On the other hand, you may not like what the dislike of Donald Trump is doing to institutions which you cherish. So... Uh, it there's it seems to me nothing wrong. It seems to me this is a I think this is my position actually. I'm not a Trump advocate either, although I'm not as far left as you are, Laura. I think we have determined that on previous conversations. But uh, uh, the Trump era. I mean, it's not only this. It's just a lot of stuff. I mean, I I don't know if you would agree. You probably wouldn't agree. <laughs> Uh, but uh, Matt Taibbi agrees. Glenn Greenwald agrees. See what I'm saying? The press, you know, if Sam Harris can come out and say, well, Trump was so much of a threat that it was okay to suppress the Hunter Biden story or anything else you needed to do to keep that dude from getting elected. The corruption... You know, nobody's going to believe anything anybody says anymore. Everybody for himself, and 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 there's no neutral court of adjudication of anything. So, uh, I have a friend uh, who <laughs> I'll stop because this is going to sound like Trump apologia, and it's not. The concern is the fear of Trump leading to. Oh, I'm sorry, I've left out the most important thing: mega extremist fascist. Is, is that how we're going to conduct the next election in those terms? That's McCarthyism. Okay, you're afraid to agree or you don't agree? No, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about Amy Wax, who you just had back on. <laughs> yes, I did. I'm glad That's you what watched. That's I'm thinking about. Thank you for watching. <laughs> okay, or oh, maybe you're not I watching. Did. Maybe you just know I had her on. But anyway, yeah, what about it? No, I listened to the whole thing. Oh, thank you. Well... I, uh, no, I always, I always listen. Um, I, so it was interesting because her, I find her positions deeply, deeply problematic. And I 
also am really troubled by the way that she's being treated by Penn. And this is, again, what we're talking about when we're talking about tribes. I mean, you're talking about sort of what language is appropriate. And maybe the bigger question is, and you're talking about Sam Harris saying, okay, it's, it's okay to suppress certain kinds of news stories because Donald Trump poses such an existential threat. And I almost feel like writ small, that's the analogy with Penn and Amy Wax, where they can't really come up with anything that she did that runs afoul of their rules. But basically, it seems like they're saying she's such an existential threat that we should get rid of her anyway. She just needs to be silenced. Have you read Dean Ruger's letter to the president of the faculty senate requesting this proceeding? It's Orwellian. I mean, it is unbelievable. Uh, in my in my humble opinion, eerie. It's eerily disquieting uh, to me. Uh, and she denies a lot of the stuff that you know. Ten years ago, a student said she said this in class. I mean, it, goodness, this kind of it's very creepy to me. I did read it. I, I did read it, and I'm I'm part of I'm a founding member of the Academic Freedom Alliance, this group of professors who believes in free speech, and and we put out a statement condemning what what Penn is doing. Oh. Not, of course, because we all agree with Amy Wax, or maybe any of us do, but because, as you say, there is something Orwellian and disturbing going on. And here's sort of the bigger problem with this. I mean, you're making one point, which I want to get back to, which is you're saying, look, you know, when you have people with a massive following saying it's okay to suppress certain stories because, because we have this existential threat, what essentially that's doing is allowing people to have even less trust in, in media institutions and be even more cynical about them than they were already. And so it erodes public trust in the media, it erodes public trust that we're actually all getting access to the same information or that we're able to really decide for ourselves what's true and what's not. And I think we're seeing you and I in our own institutions, the same battles playing out where there's this sense that, okay, the quote unquote other side, the MAGA people, the fascists, Antifa, whoever, whoever seems extreme, depending on your politics, those people are such an existential threat that they shouldn't be allowed to speak. And I find that so problematic because if there was any place where we're supposed to debate ideas, it's got to be in academia. And I think, I don't want to speak for you, that's a big reason why I went into academia was to have these debates. And it's especially important to me as someone who's a lifelong trial lawyer and an advocate to be able to understand what the argument is on the other side, whatever it is, the strongest argument, the most extreme argument, you need to know what that is so that you can rebut it. And if you sit in a silo or you swim around in a fishbowl and everybody is a goldfish and there are no other, other fishes that, that have opposing views or swimming in the opposite direction, you're just going to swim around and around and the water's going to get cloudier and you're going to get dumber. And it, it worries me. I feel like we're not actually educating our students when we say, we don't trust you to sort out fact from fiction. So we're just going to keep these ideas from you. And I don't know what you think about that. Oh, I agree with that 100%. That's classic John Stuart Mill on liberty. If you don't know the other side's argument against you, you don't know your own case. That you know, That's like, if you don't have the, the muscle memory of having to defend your position, uh, pretty soon you don't even believe your own position. You're just a, it's just incantation of, uh, of uh, you know a dead dogma and, and, and not a, a living uh, uh, knowledge or understanding of whatever it is. So, of course, I agree with that. Um, I mean, I thought, frankly, because we had this incident here at Brown when the police commissioner, Ray Kelly of New York City, was not permitted to speak. It was big brouhaha. He was shouted down like 2013, something like that. And the faculty produced the report, a committee, and then the report grounded its argument on harm, on this idea that the students who were offended by Ray Kelly, the police commissioner of New York's support for stop and frisk, were somehow harmed or made to feel insecure by the presence of, of this uh, individual who had this view about policy. That was, that was one of their main considerations and that that needed to be weighed in the balance when you make decisions about who to have speak. And I thought, <laughs> if... Indeed, Ray Kelly is wrong about stop and frisk. Let me st stipulate that I think he is. The uh, most effective thing I can do is uh, have him come and put that position and then rebut him. Um, 
the, the students are being protected from hearing his uh, uh, advocacy for the policy? No, they're being deprived of the opportunity to hear a refutation of his advocacy of the policy, this kind of thing. So uh, Amy Wax is alleged to have injured students by presenting arguments to them about things that she thinks about immigration or racial differences, social status or values and norms or whatever that they don't know how to rebut. He actually says that in the letter or quotes a student saying it. I was so uh, hurt by her taking this position and I didn't know how to, you know, I didn't know how to argue with her. Well, so she should therefore be infantilized by not being equipped with the capacity to argue with the position by preventing the position from ever being put before her in the first place. That, that's an abdication of our, our pedagogic responsibilities, it seemed to me. Right. And getting back to the stop and frisk point, how are you going to be able to explain why you think stop and frisk is wrong if you can't answer Ray Kelly's arguments about why it's right? In other words, your argument is just going to, as you say, die in the silo. And I feel like it's the same thing with Amy Wax. I find her views, quite frankly, about, about race, about gender, I find them abhorrent. But my response to that is I would prefer to have a debate with her than have what appear to be trumped up charges brought against her in a very politicized environment so that she is completely deprived of her ability to make her arguments, even though there really isn't anything in Penn's tenure rules that say that she can't. Uh, it's a stretch. Uh, she's said to have actually, you know, created a hostile environment in so many words. I mean, those are not the exact words they're using. Again, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, but to have, have, have acted in such a way as to, uh, you know, students don't want to take her courses. Colleagues are ashamed of her. She embarrasses the institution by saying she exploits the imprimatur of the institution to advance her noxious views. She invites people who are beyond the pale to speak, etc. So that that seems to be the case. Um, but at the heart of that case, I think, is the idea that her words and her views are harassment and violence that they are actual instruments of psychological, if not physical harm. And we have really robust ideas about who's allowed to say what in, in the United States and, and even in private institutions like Penn, because we generally don't believe, except in very extraordinary cases, that words are, are violence. But I think we're moving towards an expansion of what harm means and what violence is that I find that I find troubling. Isn't this another one of these team things where, I mean, for example, I can remember back a few years ago uh, when this free speech thing was kicking around, seeing a, a bumper sticker on a lamppost. Um, free speech equals hate speech. And my understanding of that was the Free speech people like you, uh, Laura, who have weaponized free speech are in a stalking horse kind of position for defending unacceptable values. So it's like you try to move the debate over to the arena of free speech, but it's really it's really that you want, I don't know, um, uh racist and uh homophobic and uh uh, transphobic uh, ideas uh, to, to get, you know, so like Dave Chappelle will say, I'm just joking. He's not just joking. He really wants to hurt trans people from this, from this point of argument. Uh, the Sandra Sellers, who was the lecturer at the Georgetown Law Center who got fired after she was heard saying that she lamented that the kids at the bottom of her class disproportionately were blacks and she got fired. She was saying, oh, I was just reporting the facts. But no, 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 no. Actually, it's white supremacy of uh, so it's a way of viewing black kids that has finally been exposed. So so the procedural argument is really on this argument, the argument I'm making now contra the procedural argument, the free speech argument is you're not really concerned about the rules about speech. You're concerned about the substantive questions under contention here. And you're on the wrong side of those questions and you're using 
free speech is a cover. What would you say to that? I think there's some validity in that. I mean, I have no idea what Georgetown's statistics are with respect to racial outcomes in my own schools or anyone's schools. So I don't know if she was correct or not. Right. But I think the point is is to ask that underlying question rather than just condemn her as a racist and get rid of her because you don't want to engage with with the substance of what she's saying. And so I think you and I you and I are, are aligned in that respect. I mean, here's one thing that I feel like is interesting, and I'm I'm curious to know what you think about this. Um, I think, as I said on a previous podcast, I've listened to all of your conversations with John McWhorter over a period of years on this podcast, and it's been interesting to watch them evolve in this respect. For a while, I think, both you and John felt, I don't know, I marginalized maybe in, in the sense of, you know, not getting the big prizes, not getting the big platforms, et cetera. I'm oversimplifying, but you had conversations, both of you, about this. And the truth is there's been a shift in the sense that John McWhorter's success as an, as an author, his success on Substack, the New York Times poached him. And the Substack business model is really where you're thriving, built on this idea that if you remove the Glenn Lowry's and the John McWhorter's and the whoever heterodox person from these legacy publications, you remove Barry Weiss, you remove Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, I could go on. The, the mainstream legacy thinking was, well, we'll just either deprive these people of a platform or we'll make it so uncomfortable for them that they leave and nobody will want to listen to them because we are the platform. We are the megaphone and they will just die. They'll be six feet underground and no one will listen to them. But that's not true. And the Substack model proves it. And so too does the New York Times coming and presenting John McWhorter with the platform he has now to be an op-ed writer. And I'm wondering about that. I'm wondering if you feel differently a couple of years later than you did back at the heart and the height of those conversations that you two were having. Probably. I think I do, actually. We started uh, our conversation here before recording with how are you? And I said, I'm I'm famously doing well. I'm feeling good. I'm, you know, yeah, I'm being heard, uh, you know, and, uh, John is, uh, you know, he's, he's on top of the world, really. He's writing, it used to be twice a week. He tells me now it'll be once a week with a big feature every 60 days or so uh, at the New York Times. That's great. So we're great. And Substack, we have followers and subscribers. Um, and you just got a big prize. Uh, I, I was awarded the Bradley Prize by the Bradley Foundation, which came with a $250,000 cash award, you know, which is not too shabby. I accept. I appreciate. Thank you uh, for contributions to American exceptionalism, <laughs> uh, by which they mean, you know, this great civilization that we inhabit here in uh, North America and in the United States and whatnot. But it, it you know, it's going to seem insufferably uh, conservative and and uh, kind of flag waving to a lot of people. Um, <laughs> I must say I like those people. Uh, I've been out to uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin. Uh, the Bradley Foundation is located in Milwaukee. Uh, Waukesha is just a stone's throw suburb. It's where that terrible uh, Christmas parade uh, uh, massacre occurred, where the guy drove, a, drove an SUV in. But I, I gave a speech to the Law and Liberty, uh, I can't remember exactly, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. And they bring uh, uh, Federalist Society-style legal activism cases on behalf of freedom, you know, from government and whatnot. Uh, I like those people. They, they, they were... They were... Uh, very appreciative of the message that I that I was uh, bringing about race and racial inequality, which is the same message. I won't try to repeat it that I that I bring here. Do I think things are doing are, are better? Am I hopeful? Uh, I I was at the inaugural kind of convocation of the University of Austin uh, in Austin uh, a few months ago. Uh, it was uh, interesting. It, it was you know I, I met some of the billionaire types who were behind it. I I met some of the uh, serious intellectuals, uh, p- people of the same spirit in terms of free inquiry and uh, expression as are you and I. Um, and uh, they, they, they're off to a good start. Uh, they had a summer institute where they brought in uh, kids for a couple of weeks of uh, intensive uh, 
seminars around some themes and had a very good following from some very prestigious places all over the all over the world, not not just the United States of kids coming in. Um, I, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure how to summarize here. I, I'm OK, uh, but I think we're in trouble. <laughs> I mean, we haven't even talked about elections. The, uh, you know, yes, no, Jan yes not, January I 6th, and, and yes, Trump denying the election. I agree. I agree. Uh, the election of 2020 is not a question for dispute. Uh, on the other hand, I see Trump advocating for lower level candidates in state elections who are going to be secretaries of state and things of this kind. And I see preemptive statements by Democrats saying Trump's people are the ones who are going to be counting the votes. And that looks to me like something on the other side of the political spectrum that's also uh, disconcerting because it, 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 it feels to me like future elections are, are going to get disputed no matter who wins. I'm scared about that, too. And I do think that this was a problem. I'm going to put this squarely on Donald Trump's shoulders because I do think that this idea that the election was stolen was a big lie. And I do think there's been a concerted effort and I guess a smart one from a tactical perspective by Republicans to elect people at the state level who are going to be doing the counting and the regulating who may well be big lie believers. And so that does scare me. And it scares me because it's an equal opportunity problem in the sense that no election is ever going to seem legitimate if that kind of thinking really grabs a hold of all of us. But I think, and I don't know what to do about that because let me, let me, this okay, I'm idea sorry. is so, no, no, I was just going to end. I'm almost done. I was just going to end by saying it's so polarizing that you have a significant section of people in this country who don't believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected. What do you do with that? Um, it was a poisoning, is a poisoning of the well, I agree, of monumental significance, it seems to me, to build your political identity as the president has, former president has done around the big lie. Um, for exactly the reason that you state, it seems to me that that's, that's uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a system breaker. Uh, exactly. What are you supposed to do with them? Uh, it, it, it sows a, a discontent and a kind of alienation and a kind of a, a lack of, of uh, credulity in the, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty bad. Um, I mean, we could liken it to some stuff, but I, you know. I mean, if I teach black kids that, you know, every time they get stopped by a cop, they need to be in fear of their lives because the cop might kill them. That's not good either. It's not as bad as what we're talking about in terms of uh, not believing in elections. But if, if I teach, <laughs> isn't this what part of this curriculum uh, struggle about critical race theory and all that is about, about the narrative, about what the narrative of the story is? So uh, this... Uh, uh, anti-elite, uh, the, the, uh, deep state, uh, you know, the, the kind of, uh, uh, conspiracy theoretic, it, it's, it's, uh, feels like poison to me. It is poison. And the other reason why it's poison, and this gets back to you talking about receiving the Bradley Prize and, and being amongst people who have more heterodox or conservative leaning American exceptionalism views and saying to me, I really enjoy being with those people. I mean, the truth of the matter is a lot of people who, quote unquote, are not on your team, I'll speak for myself, you actually have more in common with than you think and are good and decent people. I'll just give you an example. I just spent a couple of weeks researching this death penalty case in Oklahoma and writing about it. This man is on death row and I, there's pretty much overwhelming evidence that he's innocent and his biggest advocates are state Republican legislators. So I interviewed one of them at great length. And the truth is he and I do not agree about a single thing except this. And that's a big thing to agree on, that this guy didn't get the right process, that there's evidence of his innocence. And his value system is that he believes that the death penalty should be fairly administered. I don't believe it ever can be. And so I don't believe in it. But his advocacy for this man, the things that he's done, I find them really honorable. And yet 
he's the same person that believes that marriage is between a man and a woman. He's the same person that believes that you should bring a gun to a movie theater if you want to and have it resting on your lap, et cetera, et cetera. And so when we inject this kind of poison where it's literally like the other side, they're out of their minds and there's no way to reason with them and they're fascists, et cetera, we are cutting off the possibility for any sort of human connection. And that is so disturbing given First of all, how how close these elections are and how polarized we are, but also just this idea that we all share a common humanity and on some degree, a core set of values, it completely undercuts that and it makes it seem irreconcilable, these tribes and these sides. And this gets back to what you and I talked about in the beginning and why I was so nervous to speak to you and yet why I really wanted to about Title IX because I have a tribe and they have a position and I don't agree with it. Because it offends my, my core sense of, of, of common values. And, and for whatever bizarre reason, there happened to be an overlap between the way that I feel about it and the administration under Donald Trump and the way that they felt about Title IX. And that's uncomfortable. And yet, why, why should it be? Why is it so poisonous and toxic and, and canceling inducing to be able to just sort of say that basic thing? Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I have you for a few more minutes and I want to ask you. I hope I have you for a few more minutes. I, I want to ask you to go back because uh, your uh, clinic at the, the law school at the University of San Francisco is about criminal and racial justice. And you say there's a racial justice dimension to this Title IX question. I thought I saw a statistic from you somewhere about like uh, black men are 4% of college students, but 40% by some estimate of the uh, accused in these uh, things, that's the order of magnitude disparity. And even if that's wrong, if it's anything close to that, it's not with without interest. That's that's kind of, you know, which leads to kind of like, you. I mean, I can see one argument, which is, well, they do the crime, they do the time. They, they're more likely to offend, they're more likely to be in the dock. Uh, but another argument might be they're easily uh, targeted by these administrative processes because it fits with certain stereotypes or presuppositions about black male sexuality and whatnot that, um, you know, have been around in American society for a long time. Uh, how, how do you sort that out? What, what, what do you think is going on? I think it's more the latter than the former. Part of my frustration is that the federal government, I don't know why, refuses to collect statistics on outcomes of Title IX cases based on race at the college and university level, even though they do it at the lower school and middle school and high school level. And those outcomes are extremely disproportionate. It's like three, four, five, six times more likely to be disciplined if you're a person of color. So if you play out the statistics that we have when people are younger and you play out our criminal justice system statistics, you get to this logical conclusion. The statistics you quoted are from Colgate, which does keep records and are concerning. And you're right. We have this whole history. On top of that, we have the National Registry of Exonerations telling us that when these cases go to court, 70, 70 or 77% of exonerations for rape involve black men. I mean, that is just a startling wow. statistic. And so it's deeply concerning to me. And, and it is a huge motivating reason for me to represent people like John and all the clients who came after him. Could there be cultural differences? Here I speculate, and I probably shouldn't. I, black men and white women. I assume that's a lot of these cases. Could there be cultural differences between racial groups? I really don't know that there are. I'm not saying that there are. I'm just asking if there could be. In terms of the male-female thing where you interact and you say yes, you say no, and you have sex or you don't, where it's like mixed signals or something. Again, forgive me for being so naive, so crude. He didn't mean it the way she took it kind of thing like that, or we do it differently over here than we do it over there. <laughs> and then it ends up being rape or a rape accusation when in fact it's something kind of less, uh, I mean, it might still be problematic. I mean, you know, but <laughs> there I go again, apologizing for the unacceptable behavior of rapists. <laughs> 
I am not a cultural anthropologist. I'm just a lowly lawyer, but I can tell you that there's a bunch of different things going on in these cases. Sometimes um, our clients are first generation. They immigrated from another country Ah. and there were certainly different cultural mores going on where they came from. Okay. Uh, That's occasionally true. I think there's a class thing going on sometimes. I also think that there's this transition to college and this whole language of consent that people are learning for the first time that's very foreign. And that's especially true if you didn't go to an elite high school, whether that's an elite public school or elite private school. And that's true for both sides. And then you just have the fact that these these are teenagers. We are talking about teenagers who probably often don't have that much sexual experience, don't know exactly what they want or what's going to feel good. Some of it's experimentation, some of it's confusion. It's a very, very murky picture. Wow. Okay. Well, Laura, um, thanks for coming on The Glenn Show. I learned a lot talking to you about Title IX and other things. It's always a delight. Please come back again. I love talking to you, Glenn. And hurry up and finish your autobiography so I can read it. I'm working on it. Thank you. So long, then. Bye-bye.